I'm here with Sam Jacobs, who is the founder of Revenue Collective. Uh, Sam, I, I, we've known each other for the past couple years, and as I was getting, you know, a business off the ground, just really had some good insights over the past couple years, but we've never had a chance to sit down and do a, a vlog episode. So this is really about diving into Sam's life, learning all the, the, the fun and interesting twists that uh, he's had, but then also find some very tactical things that you can apply from his experience building a global community and how that can be applied to the private equity community, the M&A community, broadly speaking. You said in the past month you've had uh, an interesting turn of events. Let's, let's dive in. All right. Well, um, <clears throat> and I apologize to your viewers if, uh, if this is too weird or strange. But basically, I've been building high-growth companies in New York for 20 years. And uh, I was at actually an ACG conference many years ago in New Orleans. And somebody, there was some vision board where you're supposed to write what you wanted to achieve or some wish for yourself and what I, what I wrote is I want to achieve my full potential, which is a way of saying that I didn't think that I, I was there in terms of who I wanted to be as a person. Anyway, what I realized is that there's this inner monologue that I have and it's, um, this is, so again, apologies to the viewers, but I'm just going to go for it. Uh, it's foundational, the way that the things that happened to you in childhood are very early age, the feelings that you have that kind of calcify into, it's like a water reservoir through which all of things flow. And what I mean by that is all of your thoughts, all of your inner monologue, all of the way that you view the world is formed at an early age. It's a, through a filter. And I always thought that I, I was never aware of that filter. So I was on the surface with myself thinking that I was empathetic, I was kind, I was a good person, I was working hard at the same time that filter was telling me that I wasn't good enough and that um, I was a disappointment and that filter was angry um, at the world and jealous uh, of other people's success sometimes of just a feeling of resentment and that feeling of resentment was so primordial that I assumed it was the way that the world actually was as opposed to the way that I saw the world. So. The point that I make, so what was the thing that changed? I've just been doing a lot of thinking about this. And I realized that I didn't really uh, know, people say like you should love yourself, you know, and you can't love other people before you love yourself. And uh, you know, that sounds great. A lot of people don't know what that means. And um, I didn't know what it meant. Uh, so, I mean, again, this is sort of odd that I'm admitting it, but I, uh, or sharing it with these folks, but what I started to do was telling myself explicitly, uh, I love you. It sounds weird, but um, why does it sound weird? Well, that's my self-conscious, you know, that's like the old paradigm talking, but just reminding myself that, you know, Stuart Smalley stuff, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, and that, but it really actually works, and it's really hard work, and it's not the work of, like, talk therapy, it's not the work of working with a therapist, it's, for me, the things that change my life are daily habits, you know, I run every day, I, whatever, you know, the things that I do every single day are the things that form who I am. And so I've begun a world and a sort of a journey of like every day reaffirming to myself that I can be the person that I, not I can be, that I am the person that I've always wanted to be, that right now I am that person. 
And um, there's a lot of things that happen when you do that. One of them is that you feel a lot more secure in yourself because you don't need affirmation from other people and you don't need reassurance from other people and as a consequence you don't need anything from other people. And I don't mean need anything in like a f you way, I mean it like they can be who they are and I can be who I am. Again, I'll be very honest, I'm very, very self-conscious that I'm in my 40s and don't have kids. And I always thought that I was going to be like a young dad that was, you know, 25, 26 years old. Like, I always wanted children. I love children. And, I, and I'm in New York, and I see these people's perfect lives, or what I perceive to be their perfect life. And I have so much. I have incredible things in my life. And all I could see was that, that, that that's the one thing I don't have. And I realized that it's okay. Like, everybody's journey is okay. And I'm right where I'm supposed to be, which, again, sounds like Oprah stuff. But, um... I really truly mean it and again what happens when you feel that way is first of all you can bring your best self to every interaction you can really root for other people's success and genuinely believe it you can be kind and compassionate you don't have to be cheap you don't have to be short-sighted you don't have to be short-term greedy because you can play a much longer game and I think it just releases a burden from yourself that might otherwise be there we were talking off-camera about you know extreme ownership uh, and you know, a lot of us, re I'm reading it for the first time, and a lot of those concepts are parallel concepts, you know, which is that you, get, you can just take responsibility for your whole life, but not in, a, not in a negative way, not in a like, you suck, you need to do more, just responsibility. Like, I have agency over the things that happen, and everything that's happening, if I give my best self, which I do, it'll be okay. As I said, I've been kind of like VP of sales, CRO, VP of marketing, at high growth companies in New York for 20 years. Uh, some of those were selling to uh, your constituents, uh, you know, at Axial running sales and customer success for um, a company that provided deal flow for lower middle market private equity companies. And um, so I've been doing that. Two things have been happening. One of them is that the playbook, what, how to be a VP of sales, VP of marketing, how to do marketing to the point of this vlog, that is shifting every day in real time the tools that you're going to need as a VP of sales to be successful are changing. The second thing that's happening is that our tenure, I think there's a secular shift in the workforce, but I can tell you that at the executive level, I used to think it meant something. You know, if you're going to be a chief revenue officer, I used to think that that would mean maybe they put out a press release. Maybe you're going to be there for three, four, five years. The average tenure of a customer-facing executive at a high-growth company, and what I'm defining as high-growth is mostly venture-backed, although it could be any, any company, um, or you know, growth equity-backed, uh, the average tenure is 17 months. So what that means is that we're all, you know, and I think a plurality, it's not like 90%, but a plurality is people getting fired. And the other part of it is just it's a fluid, flexible job market. So what does that mean? That means that there is no longer more than, we've talked about this, right? We've talked about how in the 50s you could go work on the floor for Ford and be there 20 years and get your pension. Obviously there's no pensions anymore, but now there's no guidebook for any part of your career to the point of your life story, Jordan, and my life story. And there needs to be, or I thought there needed to be, some kind of connective tissue, some, something that linked a career together or at least provided tools and resources for professionals so that they felt they could sleep better at night. They knew that they had the jobs that they wanted, they had the tools that they needed, they had the community that they needed so that they could be the best selves at work, but also so that they could 
not worry if they got fired because they have opportunities available to them. So that is a long way of saying, what is Revenue Collective? Revenue Collective is a community of customer-facing executives all over the world that come together to share best practices, to support each other in their career development, to get jobs, to negotiate more effectively for those jobs, and to globalize and share at an accelerating rate all of the tools, all of the resources, all of the services that people need. How big is it now? It's global. It's global. We'll be 1,300 by the end of uh, this month. We're adding, this month we'll add probably 175 new members. Um, you know, a year ago we were 100 folks. It's, um, you know, for the folks out there that are, that are curious about the business model, it's a recurring revenue business. I am a big fan of those. Uh, people pay monthly dues or annual dues. Uh, we have a few other revenue streams, but it's fairly cut and dry. We are profitable. We haven't received or require any outside funding. On average, people are paying between $100 to $200 a month, so people can do the math on you know, what that comes to in terms of annual recurring revenue or monthly recurring revenue. And, um, and it's growing very, very quickly. It's growing way more quickly. So, for example, I left my old job, which was a machine learning SaaS business called Behavox. I left it in December 2018. And, you know, uh, not, not unamicably, but like, you know, one more time when me and the CEO didn't quite see eye to eye and it was time for me to do something else, I'd been there 10 months. And so I was getting tired of going home to my wife and saying, hey, sweetie, time to find a new gig. And we'd had Revenue Collective running in the background, and I said, well, what if I just focus on this? And so the goal was, we had about 75 members at that time, and the goal was 500 members by the end of 2019. And we ended 2019 with 1,100 members. The original goal was 2,000 members by the end of 2020. Uh, the goal that I say to the team, because now there's a team, uh, the goal that I tell the team is 3,000, but I actually think we're gonna end between four and 5,000. The original goal was 2,000 people, you know, roughly somewhere between 1,000 to 1,500 bucks uh, a year. You know, we're looking at a two and a half to $3 million business. If I don't receive any funding and I keep overhead low, nice lifestyle business. But we're growing at venture rates. We're growing at, you know, the triple twice, double three times. The, the classic profile of an IPO SaaS business is zero to one, one to three, three to nine, nine, 18, 18, 36, 72. Everybody looks like they're a venture business at that first part, and so do we. So what is the moment that you kind of realized with Revenue Collective, this is what I'm meant to do? That aha moment. I don't know that there was one moment. The beautiful thing, the thing that I'm so grateful for about Revenue Collective is I joke with my wife, I say it's Sam as a service. Like, it's... It is the embodiment of my belief system about helping other people, about making sure that all of the constituents around the cap structure and the cap table, all of the people that help create value for an enterprise, all of those people are served well, not just the investors and the CEOs. And it is such an embodiment of my belief system. That's why I'm not so worried that I won't know what to do when it becomes bigger, because I'm just going to do the same thing I've always been doing, which is stay true to what I believe and stay true to my mission. There's, I think the, the first inflection point was way before Revenue Collective was actually in 2017. Another job that I didn't, <laughs> didn't work out, where I was Chief Revenue Officer of the Muse. And I left that company in October of 2017, and I said to myself, I'm going to create new revenue streams for myself 
that are not dependent on other people because I am becoming worse and worse at working for other people. And that is when I first monetized Revenue Collective. We started charging dues December, uh, January 1, 2018. That's when, right after that, I started the Sales Hacker Podcast with Max Altschuler. Right after that, I started a consulting business. And for the first time, I realized that, like, I don't need other people. I know how to go out there and make money. And I'd always thought, you know, I've gone into other companies, other people's businesses, and I've always thought, if I can get, you know, a big boulder, even if it's just like a three-degree downward grade, you know, if I can just get it moving, I can make that thing run 100 miles an hour. I just don't know where the boulder comes from. And what I mean by that is some, some kernel of traction, you know, some business idea that warrants further momentum. Once, I, once there's that, now, in the past, other people had had that. They were the owners of that. You know, Peter Lehrman started Axial, and Mark Gerson and uh, Thomas Lehrman and Alexander St. Amon started Gerson Lehrman Group. So other people had that kernel. So now with Revenue Collective, I finally found something that is my kernel um, that now I can shove it down the hill and get it going 100 miles an hour. One of the things that I've really longed for in the M&A community is a sense of community where you can build meaningful relationships and have a form to do that, and also to leverage online platforms like LinkedIn to create meaningful interaction that's more than just a congrats. And so I'm curious to know, what are some of the key principles that you think you found or discovered through building a successful global collective of you know, revenue leaders? So I, I will share with you and these are, this is good stuff here. So if you're out there, you can apply these. There's a couple principles here. The first is that community, to be in a community, you need to self-identify. The members need to self-identify as being members of that community. Otherwise, it's an audience. So a lot of people think that by building up an email list of 1,000 people or I, you know, I, give a, I, I release a podcast and people listen to it. And they say, that's our community. No, it's not. That's your audience. That's fine. The community needs to interact with itself, and they need to raise their hand and say, I am a member of this community. So that's the first thing. So what makes people want to do that? I think one of the things I've found, because I have been to a lot of ACG events, and I have been to Opus events, the diversity of function at these events impedes the ability to create viable community. So within Revenue Collective, there's lots of people that are not allowed to join. Here are the people that are not allowed to join. Founders and CEOs any kind of institutional investor, anybody that's not below a vice president level title at an operating company, no service providers. So no search firms, the obvious people that would want to join, no consultants, the obvious people that would want to join, they would want to sell stuff to this community. We keep it very, very pure. And that means that those people can interact with each other in really meaningful ways because they all have something in common. And they're not, every time I went to an ACG event, I love ACG, but I would, you never know who you're going to sit down at, you know, those big Peyton Manning giving the keynote speech or, you know, Stanley McChrystal or whatever. And you sit down at one of those big tables in some big Hilton in Orlando, and you just have no idea who's going to sit next to you. And most of them are going to be other service providers. They're going to be people, and everybody's looking for the one person that's like, hi, I'm the GP. <laughs> I, I am the actual sponsor. I am the financial sponsor, or I am actually, I work at Harris Williams. I'm actually an investment banker. I am not 
an accountant, a life insurance person, a weird, I don't know, some strange financial product that somehow relates to that. So one of the things you need in the community is you need homogeneity. And then, of course, you know, you know, it's private equity. So I think ACG charges a lot or, you know, but you, you have some skin in the game. They all have skin in the game. Everybody pays, right? They pay something and that's to confirm their meaning. So, so that's one thing is homogeneity, the similar type of person. The, 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 form, the, the, the organizing principle is that to be a community, people need to self-identify. The third thing I would say is exactly the point that you made. I'm not sure LinkedIn is the right platform, but my, the reason I was so excited about Axial was because we'd go to these ACG events and then you wouldn't see, you know, um, forget the people's names and I don't want to butcher them now but you know you wouldn't see those BD people again for three weeks and then you would see them in Detroit but there wasn't an online platform you know one of the things that I've always thought is events in-person interactions are super powerful but there needs to be I use this word a lot connective tissue and the connective tissue is the internet so again here's something you should do if you're listening we have a slack community slacks better than LinkedIn because it's purely built around messaging. And if the same types of people are all in one global group messaging platform that has threads, right? You have channels in Slack, so you can, if you only want to talk about marketing, you can go to that place. And if you only want to talk about uh, Sydney, Australia, and events there, you can go to that place. Um, but you need some kind of global interaction, and then you need curation, you know? Uh, which means there does need to be an owner of the community whatever you want to call that person. There needs to be somebody that says, this is a question that somebody needs answered. I know who would be a good person to answer that question. Joe, let's make that connection. Oh, this, this space has been a little dormant, a little inactive. Oh, this person's selling too much and is being a little too commercial. Um, you know, we need to either talk to that person or have them removed. So you need aggressive, it's a garden. And like any garden, it'll become wild uh, if it's not tended to. But if it is tended to, it, it can become, you know, beautiful. The last thing I will say, here's another key mistake that people make. How many people have walked up to me? Again, I have a, you can do the math on 1,000 to 1,500 bucks a year, 1,300 people, plus we make sponsorship revenue. Again, we were 100 people and, you know, 25K in ARR last year. So you can tell how quickly we're growing. Every single person comes to me and they say, you know what you should do? You should start a recruiting business. You know what you should do? You should start a fund. Wouldn't it be great? They don't understand. Play a longer game. Stop trying to extract every single nickel and every single dime from every interaction that you have with a group of people or with somebody and play a longer game. Because I can tell you 100,000 people paying me, at that point it'll be two or $3,000 a year is a much bigger idea. And those people are going to join because they trust me. And they trust me because every time I say, hey, I'm recommending this consultant, but just so you know, I don't receive a kickback and we have no economic interest in this introduction. And by the way, the fewer business lines I go to, so I'm grabbing at that little pot of money, the, the less I start a recruiting firm, the more I can partner with recruiting firms. Now I can help those people instead of competing with them. Now, which is what we're doing in Revenue Collective, I can do a jobs report uh, in two weeks. By the way, last week there were 35 executive level jobs shared just within Revenue Collective Slack community, you know, CRO, VPs of sales. But, you know, in two weeks we're going to release a report that probably has 300 different jobs with some of the best recruiting firms at high growth companies in the world contributing to them actively. Why? Because I don't want anything from them. There's no money that needs to change hands. There's no success fee agreement. There's nothing. 
Every time you want to charge a success fee and every single effing person in the lower middle market wants their little 1%, 3%, 5%, and there's, you know, there's a few people that can manage it, but you just look like everybody else. You just look like one more small-time hustler looking for, you know, looking for just to carve out a little, to get a little bit of those breadcrumbs. And what if you're not like that? How do you differentiate yourself? Well, you can differentiate yourself by having a true long-term vision and saying, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to start a fund. When I give you advice, you're going to know it's because you're paying me 125 bucks a month or 80 bucks a month or whatever your rate is. That's the money. You are paying for it. That's where you get it. There's no other incentive. So let's go, let's go into the, uh, a related topic on differentiation. And you have this sales hacker podcast. Yeah. Been crushing it. The M&A community is kind of at this version 2.0 of business development. We use email. Cool. We used that 10 years ago. We, some people even have a fax number in their, in their email signature. And, vintage. And so I think that the M&A community is using old tactics and is not evolving in terms of their messaging. We're at a state now in the market where you have the commoditization of equity, debt, investment banking services, legal services. So when you're talking about originating business, what can people do that is actually different? I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts about email, podcasting, and just other techniques that you think are part of the new toolkit that people need to be using in the M&A community. The caveat here is that the tactics that I use, the marketing, the strategies that I use, or that you might use, Jordan, are, it just depends who your audience is. You know, marketing is, most people don't quite understand what it means. Some people think it's like, oh, marketing is the website, or marketing is the emails. We hired, a, we hired somebody to send out emails for us. Marketing is delivering a specific message to a specific person at a specific time. That is, the, that is the act of marketing. The purpose of it is to generate awareness and interest in your solution, whatever problem you're trying to solve. Okay, so what that means is if you're selling to small business owners, then you've got to go where they are. Maybe they're not on LinkedIn. I don't know if they are. They're certainly probably not on TikTok or Instagram. Nevertheless, so putting that aside, I think that this is, this is one of those things that does feel pretty, it's going to be pretty uncomfortable for some people. Because the, the, the trick of it is really, how do you stand out? Authenticity, right? You have to be willing. First of all, one of the things you have to be willing to do is you have to, have some, you have to be willing for some group of people to not like you. Because to say something interesting, by being, to be interesting, you must be different. To be different, there's a reason that you're different. You're opposing whatever the convention is, and there's going to be people that are wedded to the convention. So first thing is whatever you're saying has to be interesting, and interesting can't be something that pleases everybody. That's why you really have to know who you're talking to, right? Now, that sounds easy. It's not easy, right? You have to, there's a whole process that you have to go to. This is why, by the way, you know, this is not just private equity people. Like, everybody, everybody's so frustrated. What's the biggest, what is the biggest, like, thing that I'm fighting against out there in the world of high-growth businesses? I'm fighting against the idea that the general, in the, from an operational context, that hiring salespeople makes you more money, because that's just not true. What makes you more money is getting good at marketing to build awareness and interest. Salespeople turn demand into money. They don't create demand, or at least they are the most expensive way to create demand. So how do you create demand? 
right? You create demand by having a message and by bringing that message out to your audience. Well, how do you get the message? Well, it takes work, right? It's a lot easier to hire five salespeople than to say, it's going to take me a month to figure out what I want to say, what's different about it, figure out what our core values are, what is our vision and mission, how do we create that, how do we distribute that, how do we all get on the same page about our messaging, and then from there, we can deploy that messaging into Facebook ads or LinkedIn ads or Google ads. But that stuff's all very hard. So that is all caveat to say that I think, you know, if you want to stand out, first, the most important thing is your message, right? So everybody subscribes to CB Insights, you know, newsletter, Anand, what a better example, right? He's a little irreverent. He makes jokes that people don't like, but he's created a massive, now it's not a community, but it is an audience. Sometimes you don't need a community. Sometimes you just need an audience. But there's hundreds of thousands of people on that email newsletter, and that's because he says, He's going to say stuff that pisses you off or that you think maybe he probably shouldn't have said that. That's because he's being authentic. That's what authentic, authenticity feels like. So I think that's like the first part, which is like, why are you different? What is it about you that, why are you doing this? Why do you exist? Answering those fundamental questions that can feel a little, they can feel non-business-like, right? When you're answering them, they're not about EBITDA. They're just about like, why the f am I here? So that's thing number one. And then thing number two is, okay, the distribution channels. Like, what are the new distribution channels? Once you realize that your job isn't, once you can define, you know, whatever you're trying to do at a higher level uh, than just like, where else should I go? Should I put it on TikTok or should I put it on Instagram? Then you, then you realize that doesn't, you're not as beholden, right? If Slack goes away, if our Slack community becomes really noisy and not useful in Revenue Collective, we're going to have to invent some new stuff. But like, I'm not here to build Slack, I'm here to deliver, I'm here to help people's careers. So taking that as an example, once you've figured out your messaging, where can you deploy your messaging? Well, you know, I don't know, but, uh, but here are some things that are interesting. So podcasting, does the world need another podcast? I don't know if it does. It, it doesn't if you don't have anything interesting to say, right? It does if you do. Because once you build an audience, and even the first week we had 400, the first month we had like 2,000 total downloads, and I think it was like 400 people, and that was because I was, I was um, tied to a bigger brand, Sales Hacker, at a 110,000 person email distribution list at that point. And that was April of 2018 uh, when we launched Sales Hacker Podcast. This month we're going to do probably 45,000 total downloads. And so what's different? Nothing's different. Consistency. I have not missed a Tuesday ever, ever. I have not missed a Tuesday ever. So um, if you can, if you are willing to play a long game and say, I'm going to do this podcast, not because I'm expecting a return, which is all of marketing, right? I'm going to do this thing because I believe in it and it brings value to my audience or my community. And I'm going to do it for 10 years and that's okay. Once you do that, you'll be surprised at how quickly it happens. It might happen in two years. It will not happen in three months but it might happen in two years. So I've been doing this thing. I just don't miss a Tuesday. That's thing number one. Thing number two is I'm my, my authentic self. Thing number three, I have subject matter expertise when I'm on that podcast. So what is all, and now people know me. What, is that, what does that mean? What happens from that? Well, you get messages like, I listen to you on my, I moved from Detroit to, this is true, I moved from Detroit to Austin, however long that drive is, and I listen to Sales Hacker Podcasts on repeat all the way down. I want you to think of what is that like, or I'm, people are listening as they're walking, as they're on their morning jog. You're in their ears. Literally, your voice is in their ears. What is more, it's like you're whispering. Like, that's intimacy. So that's why I think podcasting is so cool 
if you have something interesting to say because it, it is such a direct connection. So, so this reminds me about, I was at an ACG Orange County uh, recently and there was a managing shareholder at a respected law firm and he said something to the effect of, I've probably had like two conversations with you, but out of, out of this entire crowd here, I feel like I know you the best. And it's because of the content that you're producing online. And that was, that was quite impactful. I mean, the returns in private equity, millions of dollars, millions of dollars in carry and in your, all of the things, right? You buy a company for $8 million, you sell it for $30 million, that's a lot of money. So all you need, that's the beauty of online, right? That's the beauty of like video on demand. That's the beauty of I can watch this later or I can listen to it later. All you need is one person. Uh, how, how do, so Revenue Collective's global, right? We have members in over 100 cities. It's friggin' amazing. The biggest second, this, Newark's the biggest chapter. The second biggest chapter is London. How did that happen? Well, when we were getting 2,000 downloads, when we were small, there was a person listening to the podcast that was a leader, a commercial leader in London named Tom Glasson, and he LinkedIn messaged me and said, hey, I heard what you're doing in Revenue Collective. You talked about it on the Sales Hacker podcast. We should do it in London. I said, let's do it. Now London has 150 people. It, I don't, it does, it's not just about the numbers, it's about who is listening. And if you can get the right people listening, even if they're small, your ROI on that is massive. One of the key takeaways I have from the past couple of years of being consistent with content is that it is not necessarily about the volume of interactions. It's about the consistency, the process, and staying true to who you are. Because you might have a post that gets not 10,000 views, it gets 1,000 views. It doesn't get 100 reactions, it might get 10. But you know who m might not have liked, might not have commented, but they saw it? That one person who hits you up because of that post, or you see them in two months and they say, I've been following your stuff. I just got done with a trip in LA. Every single meeting that I had, people said something to the effect of, I've been following it online, I really enjoy it. Not one of them has liked or commented on my posts. And now I've, it's almost like I don't learn the lesson I'm telling myself, which is quit, like ignore those particular metrics, just stay consistent be interesting, stay consistent, be authentic, the right people are gonna see it. How can private equity firms start a podcast? What are the basics to getting it up and going? It's really not as hard as you think. Um, so literally, here's the how-to. Uh, you can get a, uh, a mic, uh, it's like a Shure 51 is like, I think you want a single direction versus a, uh, like an omni-directional or whatever. Um, just so that it can focus in on your voice and not get too much ambient noise. You need a microphone that has a USB connection. You connect it to your laptop. There's an online program called Zencaster, that's what we use, which records on your hard drive and on the other person's hard drive concurrently over the, it's like, you know, over the internet. So I don't do any of my podcast interviews in person. I would like to at some point uh, as we upgrade but, but this is the way to get started. Uh, you can also do it on Zoom. Some people use Zoom. I don't, I don't love Zoom for podcasting, but some people do. So you record it. You've got to figure out what you're talking about, of course, and what the interview is. Uh, our formats are one-on-one -on -one interviews. It takes about We record for about 40-minute interviews. I do an intro that's about 
two minutes and an outro that's like four minutes. So the whole thing is about 45 to 50 minutes. I think that's probably too long for most people. I think the ideal length is about 20 minutes. Um, so then you record it. You can hire a production company. Uh, I'm happy to tell you that the production company we use is a company called Sweetfish Media out of Florida. And they will edit it for you. They will put sound behind it. The sound in my podcast is from when I was in a band. It's this band called Lipstick, uh, L-I-P-S-T-I-K, no C. It's a terrible name, but the music songs are pretty good. Um, but they will put all the sound design for you. They will edit it, and then they will upload it. And there's a platform. There's a bunch of platforms, but one of them is called Libsyn. That's the one that we use, Liberated Syndication. You upload it to there. You push it out to Apple, Spotify, all the things, and then you get to work telling people. And um, it's really not very expensive, and you can... You know, you need a contract graphic designer. You need a, somebody to do the sound editing. Um, you need guests. And then you need to, to your point, Jordan, never miss a week. You know, so. I think it's your point. It was both of our points. So that's how you do it. Again, you just have to have, you have to understand, you know, like that this is a long-term thing. You're investing in this stuff not for tomorrow to your, like, who cares what happens tomorrow? Who cares what happens next week? Who cares what happens in the next two months? This is something that you are committed to doing. This, so the, the, the importance of being consistent as a foundational principle, it's like you have to work that muscle to be consistent. And that being part of the foundation makes everything else better. And it's almost like develops this framework of life because I'm typically inconsistent and this has helped me to learn how to be consistent. You have to pick a few things to be consistent about. I, I um, like my resolutions for this year, they are so simple, and they are also not, they're not like, you have to lose five pounds, you know, and you weigh 180-something now, and you gotta weigh 179 by X. I, I understand that that's a perfectly good goal-setting framework, but for me, I can tell you my 2020 resolutions, they're and this is going to sound funny. I don't mean this in any weird way. Yeah. But uh, love yourself every day. Read, write, exercise. That's it. And then it's treat others with compassion and be your authentic self. Like, I'm trying to be a nice person to everybody I interact with and then read, write, exercise. So then I'm like, okay, did I read today? I haven't read. And it doesn't matter. I'm not saying read business books. Yeah. You know, I'm reading a science fiction right now. It's write something, journal. So because I find that the act of journaling is really therapeutic for me. And I just, you know, running is my church and I have to go for a run every day or I go crazy. And then it's like, hey, remind yourself every day that you're awesome. You're a good person. Like, you're there. You're already there. There's, you deserve every good thing that happens to you because why not? You certainly deserve it as much as anybody else. There are my New Year's resolutions. I can get them done. It's really easy. That's how I can be consistent. Is there a time when uh, back against the wall? My back was against the wall uh, from 2010 to 2017. <laughs> so, uh, and why is that? Uh, that's because, you know, they say divorce is for the very rich or the very poor and nobody in the middle. And I had just made a little bit of money in 2009 when my uh, now ex-wife filed for divorce. And that was, what, what else was 2009? Oh, the financial crisis, perfect. So I went from making a lot of money at Gerson Lehrman Group to having to leave Gerson Lehrman Group, having 
all of the money that I made, either taken away by lawyers or by my ex-wife or distributed in some way, and going to Axial, which was essentially, we call it post-revenue. Like, there were some customers, but like, I took a massive pay cut. I had to dramatically change my life. And meanwhile, as we've discussed, I hadn't had any of these epiphanies. Some of these epiphanies might have made me an easier coworker, but I, I hadn't had them. As it is, I'm not a very good coworker. You know, I'm a better CEO than I am a VP of sales. So for those seven years, I was in a state where my livelihood and my future, because I was not bankrupt, but I think counting debt insolvent, you know, for those seven years, I was having to fit a square peg into a round hole to please people that, um, that I, that for my, just based on how I was programmed, weren't, weren't an optimal fit for me. Cause at that point, especially I wasn't really good as, as an employee, much better as a founder. I just didn't have anything to found. I didn't have the idea. Those seven years were nerve wracking. And, uh, because I would go into these high growth companies with expectations that were out of alignment. They weren't realistic. The venture capitalists didn't really understand how to produce meaningful. They don't, they don't actually know how to make money or generate revenue, at least in an operating company. They may think they do, but my experience is they do not. And so, and I'm sitting there, you know, with targets that are too big, with people that are frustrated because we're not hitting those targets, with me frustrated, trying to help these companies grow, um, not having a lot, not having a big margin of error. That was seven years. And then the thing that happened, which is to the point of the big change in my life, was really began in... The first change in my life happened in 2010. That was an inflection point. That's when I say that I became a man. And I was about 33. Uh, and then uh, the next big change happened in 2017, seven years later, when I left the Muse and I said, I can't do this anymore. I have to go out and make my own money so that I do not depend on other people. And even though I worked somewhere else for 2018, I had negotiated a revenue collective <laughs> flagship deal uh, with this particular company, which protected me in all eventualities. And that was when my life changed. My life changed when I took control of it. And now, when you're building a business that's working, that's doing what you love, sometimes it, it feels like cheating. You're like, is it supposed to feel hard? Harder than this? I mean, there, we have challenges. We have significant challenges. But I'm doing something that's super true to myself. And really, I do not have... We don't have investors, you know? That doesn't mean, by the way, I'm like sitting here going to Cancun every two weeks. It means that, for now, this is the right way to do it. And my back is from against the wall because I built a recurring revenue business that is hard to build over, that takes years, because they're all $80 a month, 125 bucks a month, 215 bucks a month. But what, is that, what do we all know in private equity? What does that mean? There's no customer concentration. That means that once you build it, it is a durable, sustainable asset that protects me from my moodiness and my emotions and my inability to interact with other people, even though I think I'm now probably a lot easier to get along with than I was. 10 years ago. You know, I was at breakfast with, um, with a, a mentor, super successful, really incredible person. He was a leader at Gerson Lemberger for a long time. Now he's like, he's written this amazing novel. He's become a writer, like an actually good science fiction writer, not like a business book writer. 
So I was saying, you know, if Revenue Collective doesn't work out, I guess I could try going, going to work for somebody else. And he said, I think we've tried that experiment, haven't we? <laughs> I was like, you know what, we have, I guess. It's this or bust. Uh, you have a coach for everything. Why do you have a coach for everything? So I don't want to overstate it. I mean, I have two coaches. I have a business coach and I have a running coach. Um, because I want to be, the things I want to be good at, I want to be good at and I want to do them right. And this came home to me a few months ago in October because I was, so first I ran 2016, was it 2016? It was 2018. I ran Philly Marathon 2018. It's a beautiful course, it was a beautiful day. I thought I was in the best shape of my life. Hit the wall at mile 20. Still finished, you know, PR, but like, almost couldn't move my legs. They felt like they were full of cement. So then I reviewed my running schedule. I was like, oh, it's elevation. I was training too much on flat stuff. I need to find elevation in every run. So then I started rigorously mapping my elevation. And I was gonna run New York last year, 2019. And then I got injured again, even though I had just run 215 miles with like the most elevation I've ever had in September. I got injured October 2nd. I tore a hamstring. And so that led me on a path of like going to PT people and doctors, and they all thought, we can get you better by November 3rd, and they couldn't, and I didn't run the marathon, and finally I found a coach. And he said, well, were you doing cross-training? Were you doing weights? I was like, I don't do weights. I just run. I just run a lot. He's like, well, you're alternating your shoes, because the shoes you're running with are actually pretty heavy. They're putting a strain on your hamstring. I was like, I didn't know that. I, I, I mean, I sometimes alternate, but I thought this was making it better, like when you have a heavy bat in the batter circle for baseball. So my point is that the things I want to be good at, I want to be good at, and I know that they require guidance. Everybody needs an editor. I need, I need somebody that knows what they're talking about so I can bounce ideas off of. That includes business. I have a business coach. I have a running coach. I was going to hire a nutritionist, but nutritionists kind of like you just go there once and they remind you, like, yeah, you shouldn't drink all the time and eat chocolate and you'll probably feel better. So, but I did see a nutritionist. But I just think, like, if they're, I play chess a lot, but I'm not, you know, I'm here but I know what I would need to do to be good at chess and it would be hire a coach and dedicate my life to it and I do not feel like doing that. So I'm, gonna, I'm content to be average at chess, uh, but I'm gonna be good at running and I'm gonna be good at business. A lot of the audience here is in private equity, private credit, investment banking, portfolio company managers. How could Revenue Collective be relevant to them? So the question was, how can relevant Revenue Collective be relevant if you're out there, you're in private equity, you're on the institutional investment side, you're a lender of some kind, or you're a banker? And the answer is, the executives at your portfolio companies, the executives at the companies, if you're a banker, that you're representing, those executives can and should join Revenue Collective. Why? Particularly if it's lower middle market private equity, right? And so you've got a class of companies that are... Probably, even though they might be doing two, three, sometimes eight, ten million dollars in EBITDA, sometimes twenty million dollars in EBITDA, they are—they're um, probably, or there might be an opportunity, given that the playbook is changing, there might be an opportunity to modernize their sales and marketing tactics. Maybe they can get more efficient and can squeeze more EBITDA out of them. Uh, maybe they can just expand the size of the market through different strategies. If they are not in a community that is on the cutting edge, they will never get exposure. And what happens when you're at, particularly if you're at a, at a private equity company that's trying to do something with the company in three or four years, you're probably working your butt off. 
and the consequence there is that you might not have outside exposure, enough outside exposure. And Vistage is not going to cut it. YPO is not going to cut it. They're not modern enough, right? You need to be around people that can deliver best-in-class modern digital marketing strategies, modern sales strategies. How can you close a $50,000 deal, deal on the phone with an inside sales team and do it with only four people? And so... That's why they should join, because it's going to drive efficiency and it's going to drive enterprise value for their investments. Their CEOs cannot join, but vice president of sales, marketing, customer success, operations, COO, CRO, CMO, they can all join. They should join. RevenueCollective.com. Go to the website. The bottom of the page says apply now. Click there. Send them my way. Well, I think the other interesting thing is that it sounds like a lot of the uh, members are also part of high-growth companies. And, you know, at different stages in a business evolution and being around people who are very different and very, facing different sales problems and revenue problems and challenges, it's good to be around that. Yeah.